At the end of ten days, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. And then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares Yahweh, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you, and let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of Yahweh your God and saying, No, we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of Yahweh, O remnant of Judah. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, If you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, As my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt." You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. Yahweh has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to Yahweh your God, saying, Pray for us to Yahweh our God, and whatever Yahweh our God says, declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now therefore, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of Yahweh their God, with which Yahweh their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshea and Johanan the son of Korea and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. Yahweh our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there, but Barak the son of Neriah has set you against us to deliver us from the hand of the Chaldeans into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of Yahweh to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of Yahweh, and they arrived at Tophanes. When the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah and Tophanes, take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tophanes in the sight of the men of Judah, and say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, 
and I will set his throne above these stones that I've hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisk of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, today as we hear your voice in your word, grant grace that we not harden our hearts. Father, grant us hearts that would pray the prayer of the Judean remnant here but pray it truly and without hypocrisy. Speak, and whether it be good or bad, may our heart be bent to doing Your will. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Chapters 37 through 45 form a distinct chronological section In Jeremiah, they form this distinct section. It's distinct because it's chronological. Uh, Jeremiah is broadly chronological, but in the midst of that, it's a jumble. But this section is strictly chronological. It's not only historical, which makes it stand out, just this solid block of historical material, but it's generally chronological. It takes us from the last days of Zedekiah's reign to the fall of the city to the aftermath of a governor being put in place, to the prophet's last words spoken to this remnant in Egypt. And within this section, chapters 40 through 44 are even more tightly bound, intertwined. You, you, they're, they're meant to be taken. If, if you, this is one of those instances where context really getting the first level, just the first level of context so you can understand what's being said means reading at least five chapters. Uh, To understand any part of this, getting the context of any verse in the midst of this means reading about five chapters out. As you look at chapters 40 and 41, a number of questions come to mind, a number of questions begin to be answered, but these questions uh, begin to be be answered and and begin to arise in your mind that you really don't get answers for until uh, what we're getting into today, chapters 42 through 44. And now, so as the answers begin to unfold for us in these chapters, we mustn't forget the questions that the previous chapters brought to mind. We're getting answers now, but we can't forget the questions that we're getting answers to. So, review. Nebuchadnezzar has appointed Gedaliah governor in the land. Soon after this, a number of captains approach Gedaliah to 
you get the sense they're sniffing him out. They're trying to figure out the situation. Gedaliah urges them, settle in the land, farm, bring in the summer fruits. Let me be between you and Babylon. They are not antagonistic, but they don't take up the the offer either. You get the sense they're they're supportive but skeptical, and they go back to the open wilderness, the area around there. But also we see a number of Judean refugees returning from the surrounding nations to which they had fled. Moab, Ammon, Edom, they're coming back and they do settle down and they bring the summer fruits in in abundance. And so the question you're asking is the city's fallen and what's next? And you see these things happening and you're wondering perhaps Jeremiah might live out his last days in peace. After everything he's endured, perhaps he might live in this land, enjoying God's blessing on this remnant that remains in the land. But soon, the captains returned, telling one of those who had previously been among their number, Ishmael, is being sent by Baalus, the king of Ammon, to murder him. Gedaliah refuses to believe this. Consequently, thereafter, he's murdered. And the captains, hearing of Ishmael's treachery, pursue him, rescue the captives, and then begin to head towards Egypt for fear of reprisal from the Babylonians for these things. So, questions you're coming to is, what's what's next? What lies in front of the people of God and, and with that, as you begin to see it, as you see these things unfold, you see it's not Jeremiah, he's not going to enjoy peace in his last days. These further things come upon the people of God, you're seeing what's next, and the question you then begin to ask is why? Why, why are all these things happening now? That's what we come into 42 and 43 pondering. And as the previous pair of chapters opened with a hopeful episode with Gedaliah being governor in the land, this pair of chapters opens with a hopeful episode in the people coming to Jeremiah pleading that he plea for them. We've seen Zedekiah come with inquiries to Jeremiah, but never have we seen the people as a group come in this manner. And so the people are coming, and not only are they coming, they're coming united to Jeremiah. They seem to be coming humbly and earnestly and and with a heart resolved to do God's will. The military leaders, all the people from the least to the greatest, they've come before Jeremiah And their plea is that Jeremiah would plea for them. And they present two basic reasons as to why they desire this. The first regards their need. The second, their desire. Verses 2 and 3, their need. Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to Yahweh our God for us for all this remnant because we are left with but a few. So pray For this remnant, this small remnant there, you get the sense of one reason they desire this is how insignificant, how small they are. They they need to hear 
And the second is their desire. Pray that Yahweh your God may show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. You notice it's striking that two times in this they refer to Yahweh as your God. And I think in their mind when they say this, what they're trying to convey is a kind of humility. Jeremiah, you're close to God. We're far. It's a sense of everything that's unfolded upon the people of God up to this point, the judgment they've endured. You're near, we're far. Plea before Yahweh your God for us. They speak far better than they know, though. I think this will be proved to be a very telling detail. It will be made clear that they are indeed far from Yahweh while Jeremiah is near. Jeremiah, hearing their plea, agrees to it to bring their request before God, verse 4. And in one sense, you see he said that he would bring their request before their God, verse 4. I have heard you, behold, I will pray to Yahweh your God according to your request. So in one sense, Yahweh is not their God. They don't bow to Him. We'll see the hypocrisy in their request soon. They don't bow to Him. They don't submit to them. He's not their God in this sense. And in another sense, He is their God. He has rights on them. They are not their own. So Jeremiah promises not only to plead for them, but he says, I will tell you everything Yahweh tells me. I will hold nothing back. And there's, there's something to be said here in what Jeremiah, Jeremiah already perceived something. They want the word filtered. They want Jeremiah to hold back. And Jeremiah says, okay, I will plead for Yahweh and what I receive, I will tell you holding nothing back. You remember whenever Balak wanted Balaam to curse the people of God, Balaam told him, The words that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Numbers 22, 38. And even though Balaam has prefaced it in this way, whenever Balaam does speak, blessing Israel, Balak asks, What have you done to me? And Balaam responds, Must I not take care to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth, Numbers 23, 12. And that kind of exchange happens two more times. And each time, I mean, each time, Balak is just as astounded. It's as though he regards Balaam as a vending machine. And if he just keeps making the offerings big enough, the, the promise is big enough, he can get him to say what he wants him to say, and that'll make it so. King Ahab, you remember, had a similar encounter with the prophet Micaiah. In 1 Kings chapter 22. The king uh, doesn't want to consult Micaiah at first. Because he says he never says anything good about me. It's always evil from that guy. And King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, insists upon this. And so he brings him in. And, but one of his servants preps Micaiah. Saying that you need to speak favorably about the king. And 1 Kings twenty two fourteen, we read Micaiah's reply. As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. And when Micaiah first comes in, he does speak favorably concerning the king. But there must have been a sarcastic tone in the presentation. 
because Ahab says, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Which is, this is really humorous. The guy never says anything good. And now he's telling you, telling Micaiah, you need to speak the truth after he spoke good. You see? So Micaiah then gives the word unfiltered. He holds nothing back. And Ahab afterwards turns to Jehoshaphat and says, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? It's in this way that the people of God are, are seeking a word from Yahweh here. They're seeking at the same... We're prepped for this because this is is the same way that Zedekiah inquired of Yahweh in chapters 21 and 37. It becomes plain that he and now they do not desire the word of Yahweh. They desire a word from Yahweh. They don't desire the word. They desire a word. And thus, whenever they receive the word, they're not happy because they didn't receive a particular word that they were desiring. This is not them seeking obedience to God's will. This is them seeking God blessing their will. Even so, they respond with a pledge, an oath, cursing themselves if they don't act according to Yahweh's word in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 42. Whether it's good or bad, they promise to obey for the reason that it may be well with them. And their language here echoes that of Sinai. Whenever Moses first came down the mountain, telling the people what's to unfold, the people reply, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And then later, as the people are beginning to enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 40, Moses would tell them again, Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you. And with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for all time. And early in His ministry, Jeremiah brought this very truth to bear freshly on the people. Chapter 7, verse 23. This command I gave them, Yahweh says, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. And so, Jeremiah, tell us Yahweh's word that we may walk in it, that it may be well with us. This all sounds so good. And everything they say will prove to be a lie, save that. If they would have walked in the way of Yahweh's word, it would have been well with them. And Yahweh will indeed act as a witness against them. What will become clear is that this is not a humble plea for mercy. It's an arrogant demand for permission. Derek Kidner writes, They had regarded God as a power to enlist, not a Lord to obey. Whenever they... They come before Jeremiah and they say, pray to Yahweh, your God, for us. They sound like the pagans often do. And they don't just realize how pagan they are in this hypocritical request, thinking they can manipulate God. They put on a show of seeking God's favor, hoping to procure it, 
only because they can't imagine anything other than a green light for Egypt at this point. They're like the child that only asks for permission whenever they're really certain there will be a yes so that they can give the appearance of being a submissive child. Whenever they know the answer will be no, well, then they'll play innocent and ignorant. Oh, I didn't know you wouldn't want me to do this, you see? So the only reason they're asking at this junction is they can't imagine anything other than a yes. But they'll soon find that they are not so cute and God is not so naive as to fall for this. The reason why so many... The reason why so many who are bent on hearing a word from Yahweh, the reason they cannot hear is because they're earnest for hearing a word instead of the word. See, there's so many, they seem to be seeking the word of Yahweh, and the reason they can't hear is because what they're really bent on is hearing a particular word and not the word. This is the kind of faux spirituality that walks away from the Bible talking about how they, they found these couple of verses and God really spoke to them through the text. And they're completely ignorant of the text. They don't know what God is saying but they've wrangled a few verses so that they can hear a word. The one they want to hear. This is the kind of blind hypocrisy spoken of in Isaiah 29. The vision of all this has become to you. So there's a vision that Yahweh, Yahweh's laid out through Isaiah before the people. And he says, the vision of all this has become to you like words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And Yahweh said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Here's this hypocritical people that their, their mouths sound so good, but whenever earlier it's speaking about their, their understanding of the word of God, they're incapable of doing so. They speak well but they cannot read. There's a kind of seeking a word that never finds the word. There's a kind of earnestness for a word that never hears the word. Beware this kind of hypocritical show of seeking God's will, which is really nothing other than a desire for God to bow and bless your will. He cannot be manipulated. You must submit. And if you do, it will be well with you. 
And if you do not, God will be a witness against you. As you read their request, especially with all the events that have led up to it, don't you sense their earnestness with which they come to Jeremiah in this? Their anxiety. Recall, the governor that Nebuchadnezzar has set in place has been murdered. The Chaldean soldiers billeted there, murdered. Time has then transpired so that Ishmael has taken this group captive en route to Ammon. The captains have received word of what has happened. They've pursued them, overtaken them, rescued the captives, returned to Mizpah, collected their goods, journeyed to Gareth Kimmim near Bethlehem. All this time has transpired. And their fear is reprisal from the Babylonians. They want to get going. And it's ten days later that Jeremiah receives a word from Yahweh. If your seeking is a kind of panicked, earnest, need to answer now kind of seeking. If your seeking is a panic seeking, it is highly likely that you never were seeking Yahweh's word, nor are you now seeking Yahweh's word. If your seeking is panicked, you have not been seeking Yahweh's word, neither are you now seeking Yahweh's word. Because seeking God's will means fearing God. And if it's a panicked kind of seeking, you're fearing something other than God. If you've been seeking God's will, then you know in that place, as you're walking in His paths and in His truths, you know that in that place you can have confidence and you can have peace and you can have assurance. Often, whenever things look good spiritually with this, looks good to an outside observer, when it looks good, quite often I'm afraid, it's simply that one, we're comfortable, and two, we're not sinning ostentatiously, openly, defiantly. We're comfortable, we're not sinning in some big way. So the reason we began this kind of panicked, urgent seeking of God's will is because we're not comfortable anymore. We want our comfort back. It isn't God's will that we're seeking. It's His favor. So that we can continue on our will comfortably. Like these Judeans what we too often want is an urgent word focused on our comfort rather than the eternal word focused on God's eternal glory. This delay, I believe, not only rebukes them, I think it communicates something of the word itself, of the message to them. Chill out. Don't fear, king of Babylon. Fear Yahweh. And further in this, it's communicated to them, God doesn't speak on command. Judah's problem right now 
is not their need of some fresh word. Judah's problem right now is their disregard of the old word. Our biggest problems are not that we need some immediate word for us concerning the future. Our problem constantly is our disregard of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need the revelation that was etched in stone. We need the revelation that testifies of the blood. We need God's word of gospel and law again and again. And hearing it and and obeying it, there we find our peace. There we find our refuge. There we can trust our God that whatever comes our way, be it good or bad, we can trust whatever it is, is for His eternal glory and our eternal good. And so finally, whenever Yahweh's word does come into our narrative, it it feels the same way as whenever Aslan finally bounds into the Chronicles of Narnia. Every time you're you're reading one of those, you're just waiting for him to finally show up. And in the same way, as you're reading this historical account, you're sick of dealing with sinful men. God, speak! And he says to them, If they'll remain, he will build them up. He will plant them, for he has relented of the disaster that he did to them. 42 and verse 10. His wrath has been poured out upon them in the destruction of Jerusalem. And if God's wrath has been spent and he is now with them, they have no reason to fear the king of Babylon. 42 and verse 11. See, the Judeans are not only failing to believe God's word of law, they're failing to believe his promises. They believe neither His promises nor His law. Reverence for the Word of God is not only directed towards believing His judgment, but believing His grace. Saints, God's wrath has been spent on Christ in our stead. God is with us, Emmanuel. Jesus, Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. So should we not say with Paul, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do not. Fear, God is with us. Let us sing with David. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes? It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Psalm 27. And so then the contrast that we have in 42 and verse 13 is between fearing the king of Babylon and fearing Yahweh. So don't fear the king of Babylon, verse 13, but the implication is that they are acting in fear. So if they fail to fear Yahweh 
and they're fearing the king of Babylon, it means that rather than acting in God-dependence, obeying His truth, whenever seemingly seemingly doesn't make sense, they're acting in self-reliance and in their own wisdom. And they're going to Egypt. If they do so, they will run into everything they are trying to run from. Verse 13, if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of Yahweh your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there, then hear the word of Yahweh, O remnant of Judah. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt and there you shall die. And the men who set their faces to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I'll bring upon them. Back up. The famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you. The sword of which they fear, overtake them. The famine of which they're afraid, follow them. When you run in fear, you often run into your fears. If they flee to Egypt hoping to escape war and famine, that's precisely what they run into. There is one fear we should be dominated by. The sovereign and holy Lord of heaven. And any, if we fear Him, we can have peace, and rest and trust His sovereign hand. And if we do not fear Him, there is no refuge for us anywhere otherwise than in Him that can protect us. The wrath that God has relented of, the wrath that fell on Jerusalem, He promises will fall upon them. As my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. But, there is this major difference. Whenever Yahweh poured out His wrath on Jerusalem, there was a remnant. Whenever Yahweh pours out His wrath on this remnant, there will be no remnant. Verse 17, They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. The result is that they will become an execration, a horror, a taunt, a curse. It is though God is saying, whenever someone wants to say the worst possible thing about someone else, not some mere vain insult, but a real curse, whenever they want to say that kind of thing about someone, your name is what will come to their mind. If they leave, Yahweh says, you will see the promised land no more. And then you shift... From Yahweh's word to Jeremiah's application thereof in 42, 19 through 22. Something has transpired, and I believe it's as simple as this. As as Jeremiah already perceived their hearts, as he's declaring the word, it is obvious in how they're responding to it, just in his declaration, that what he suspected 
is being proven true. The Word of God is piercing, illuminating, and exposing them. So that in His application, though the Word called for two different scenarios. If you stay, if you leave. Blessing, curse. Jeremiah preaches in application all the second part as being true of them and only that. They've asked for directions, but they have no intent on heeding them. They just want to give the impression of, I'm not too proud to ask for directions. Not imagining they'd hear anything other than, keep going the way you are. They refuse to take a right because they're resolved to take a wrong. They speak piously but listen wickedly. Verse 19. Yahweh has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for certainly that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to Yahweh your God, saying, Pray for us to Yahweh our God, and do and, and whatever Yahweh our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh your God in anything that He sent me to tell you. They speak piously, but listen wickedly. To speak well is nothing if we do not hear well. Hard ears reveal the wickedness of a hypocritically smooth tongue. They sing pretty. They sing soundly. But their heart isn't in it. All the lyrics are orthodox. Covenantal. Packed with truth. They sing pretty, but their heart isn't in it. And in this instance, the beat is more important than the lyrics. Because God is listening to the heartbeat. And it's way off. As for this refusal to hear anything, Yahweh, Jeremiah tells them that they should know for certain that they will die by sword, by famine, by pestilence in the place they go to live. Verse 22. Refuse to listen to Yahweh's word and know that whatever it is that you expect to find life in, you will find only death. From the garden, to the flood, to the wilderness, the time of the judges, under the kings, to Egypt, again, and again it's borne out in Israel's history. Seek refuge in anything other than Yahweh. Seek life in anything other than the God who is alive, and you will find only death. Whenever many turned for offense from Christ because of His words, Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them, Will you too leave me? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the very words of life. Life and joy are found in the glad embrace of Christ's words, God's words. Jesus told His disciples, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There is health in hearing, and there is death in deafness. People respond to Yahweh's word. Jeremiah is rebuked by calling Jeremiah a liar, 43, 1-3. They've lied to Yahweh. And now, because they don't like the truth, they accuse Jeremiah of being a liar. And it's a pretty pathetic lie. Yahweh didn't send you with this word. You're in conspiracy with Barak. Barak's giving you this because you want to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans. So, they disobey. Johanan, the leaders, take the remnant, including Jeremiah and Barak, into, into, into Egypt to Tophanes, which is on the eastern delta of the Nile. But having run contrary to the word of God, they cannot run from it. While there, Jeremiah receives a word. I wonder if they regretted bringing Jeremiah along at this point. The word comes to Jeremiah concerning another sign act. And so often, with most of the sign acts Jeremiah performs, they've been very costly. And you might read this, well, get some big rocks, put them there. Can't be costly. Yeah, but read the word. He's in Egypt. Uh, this isn't the kind of word you want to get around to, the king of Egypt. I don't think this would be viewed favorably. And yet, there's such boldness demonstrated here. These stones that are hidden... Yahweh says, notice that he says, he hid them. The prophet's acts are his own. Over them, his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, will establish his throne. And all the destruction that this remnant has hoped to escape, they've only brought with them to Egypt. As for the significance of the temples and, and everything that's involved there being struck down, we'll leave that. That becomes clear in chapter 44. As these events following the destruction of the temple unfold, you begin to understand that what's next for the people of God that remained in the land, what's next is judgment. And so you're asking yourself, why? Why are these... Why are these things, why this judgment? Initially, the death of Gedaliah and everything that happens there, you can see, comes as a kind of test. Not the kind of test where Yahweh is getting information he didn't have, but the kind of test that makes plain information that others can't see, but Yahweh knows. It makes obvious the truth about who they are. Yahweh is still using Jeremiah as a tester of metals. Jeremiah 6, 27-30 I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. And then to make plain <laughs> that Yahweh doesn't need the test, He tells Jeremiah before he has gotten the results in, here's what they will be. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron, all of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, the refining goes on, it's still going. For the wicked are not removed, 
rejected silver, they are called, for Yahweh has rejected them. What's being made plain is that this remnant isn't the remnant. God has made promise graciously of preserving a remnant, and God is making plain this isn't it. In chapter 24, God already explained to Jeremiah that there are good figs and bad figs. And the bad figs are the ones that he leaves in the land. And from among those that are taken to Babylon, he will create good figs and bring them back. So what's next? More judgment. A judgment on this remnant that will leave no remnant. Why is this judgment coming? Because they don't listen. Why don't they listen? I think this text has laid out three answers. One, why don't they listen? Why don't we listen? One, fear. Because we fear so many small, ridiculous things rather than the omnipotent, holy, sovereign heaven. We don't listen because we fear. Two, pride. You not see their pride here? Their self-reliance, their thinking they know better? And then finally, their unbelief. The word comes to them, they think it a lie. They call God a liar. Unbelief, this is the ugliness of it, made apparent. Do you not see the magnitude of your sin, my sin, when we fail to believe the Word of God? We call God a liar. We say of our fears, that thing is true. We say of ourselves in our pride, I'm wise. I'm capable. We call God a liar. We say, He is not that big and powerful. Not worthy of our fear. This is the great sin of not listening. This is the sin, as old as the garden. This is what all sin is. It's this simple. It's not listening to the voice of Yahweh. So hope you can see why it's worthy of such judgment. But the good news is that Christ had a perfectly open ear. To his father's voice. To accomplish all his will. So that those in whose place he stood. Might be clothed with his righteousness. He heard for us. He not only heard for us in the sense of obedience. He heard God's word of judgment on himself. For all of our wicked deafness. He bore the wrath of God for all of our failures 
to listen. It's as though Christ went to Egypt to bear judgment for our sins so that we might be welcomed into the promised land for His obedience. So sinner, hear this word. Genuinely, truly, humbly repent of your not listening. And believe, trust that Christ listened perfectly to be the righteousness of all who would hope in Him. And He suffered bearing the punishment of sin for all who would trust in Him. Hear this word. And if you do, then know you are part of God's holy remnant. And you live as an exile. One who is not at home. Assured of God's promise. That the new Jerusalem will descend. And so you will forever be with the Lord. You're not forsaken. His wrath has been sent. In Christ He's with you now, with you forevermore. Let's pray. Father, for the soul here, that everything looks so well, And perhaps it's been in the midst of this trial, it's been made clear and plain that it's not. They've just been comfortable sinning in small ways. And so, Father, if there's any such hypocrisy, grant true hearts of repentance and faith. And for your people, your word comes with conviction, but also with grace. As we plead, we believe, help our unbelief. Turn our eyes in fear and reverence to be dominated, to be fixated, to be astounded. At what is truly awesome and glorious. And then. To rest knowing. That in Christ. You are for us. And to tread your ways. Knowing that we can walk them in confidence. Knowing that it will be well with our soul. When we do. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.